0: Welcome everybody, Uh, this is Dr. Norm Tebow with our uh, Three Point Center Parent Podcast. Um, Good good morning to you. Well, it's morning to us. I'm not sure when you're going to be listening to it, but I am so thrilled today to have uh, as as a guest on our podcast, Sue Badeau. Sue, um, Sue writes and speaks extensively on topics related to children, particularly those with special needs. She's a frequent and passionate keynote speaker uh, and a workshop leader at state, regional, national conferences. Sue and her husband Hector are the lifetime parents of 22 children, two by birth and 20 adopted. You heard that correctly. Two by birth and 20 adopted. Sue and Hector had three children who had terminal illnesses who are now deceased. They've also served as foster parents for more than 50 children in three states. And as a host family for refugee Uh, youth from Sudan, Kosovo, and Guatemala. They've won numerous awards for their work, including being recognized by President Bill Clinton with an Adoption Excellence Award and receiving an Angels in Adoption Award from Congress. Both of these awards were for their work on behalf of adoption and children in foster care, which is so near to to all of us. Sue and Hector are also authors, and we'll talk a little bit more about their book a little later. The Bado family children come from many ethnicities and personal backgrounds. Some children were adopted at birth. Others were teenagers when they joined the family, like many of you uh, Three Point Center parents. Some are from the United States. Others are from countries around the world. Some have mental, physical, intellectual, or emotional challenges. And many of you listening can relate to that. Um, I first became acquainted with Sue through our shared work on the board of directors uh, of the Association for Training in Trauma and Attachment in Children. She and I have gone on to present trainings together to teach therapists how to better work with our kids. Um, I got to say, I love Sue. She's an amazing font of knowledge, wisdom, graciousness. Um, I, I, I'm so impressed by the, the way she presents her information and who she is as a person. Um, you're going to love Sue as much as I do, and I'm honored to call her a colleague and friend. So with that, Sue, welcome to our podcast.
1: Well, wow, thanks, Norm. I'm so excited to be talking with you. That was an over-the-top uh, introduction, but thank you. And, and well, it's I, so, so I, true. It's, I could have gone on <laughs> for the whole podcast. <laughs> and I have to tell whoever's out there listening that I love you equally. So this is like a mutual love test here. <laughs> um, oh, thank you, Sue. I'm looking forward to to just having this conversation with you.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much. So we'll, we'll jump right into it, Sue. You have been involved in adoption at a variety of levels for a number of years. How did you first become involved with adoption?
1: Well, interestingly, um, involved in my mind and in my heart started when I was a child. I I read a book with the unfortunate title of The Family Nobody Wanted, Uh, but the authors uh, were the Dos family, D-O-S-S, and they were one of an early family in the U.S. to adopt older um, children, children with special needs. Um, you know, children that were uh, from different racial and ethnic backgrounds. And they wrote a book. They did this in the 50s and 60s. And um, and they wrote a book about it that I read as a child and uh, started asking my parents if they would adopt some siblings for me. Uh, they did not. <laughs> <laughs> but it it was that fire in my heart for a long time after that. And, and luckily, um, even though uh, it didn't really come up immediately as I started dating my parents, um, High school boyfriend who might later became my husband, um, luckily he felt the same way so but then you know we got married and the beginning of newlywed life that wasn't our first topic of conversation until so we actually uh, went to a an event at our church where they were kind of doing a recruitment uh, for families and so so we jumped right in with two feet I mean literally, it was very soon after we were married. Um, and then, you know, we were still in that newlywed phase, and I soon after that was pregnant with our first biological child, and we were very poor. And I walked; we walked together. Uh, we didn't even have a car at the time. We walked oh. to the local adoption agency uh, with me visibly pregnant, us being very young, not even having enough money for a car, and walked in and said, "Oh yeah, we want to adopt a child." Um, I often tell people <laughs> have to laugh, like you just said They should have laughed and sort of patted us on the head and said you're you're really cute but you should come back when you grow up um but because you know uh the need for families uh this was an agency that did do some specializing in older children and children with special needs the need is and always has been great and so they they just like whisked us in and said we're so glad you're here and let's get started and and so so that's you know, that's how it all began. And we we became foster parents first through that process and then started adopting and kind of went on from there.
0: Wow. What a journey you've had, an amazing journey. So looking back, what do you wish you would have known when you first adopted? What do you wish you would have known back then?
1: Well, there's probably many things that, in fact, uh, you mentioned that we wrote a book, I think, Mostly why we wrote a book was to put all the things down that we wish we were known so that now other people could know them. But um, I'd say now, at this phase of my life, the number one thing that I really felt and continue to feel unprepared for. um, I grew up in a family where, you know, you you finish, you, you go through your life, you graduate high school, and whatever you do after that, which in my family's college was expected, but, you know, whatever you did after that, soon after that, you kind of stop living with your parents. And not only do you stop living with them, but you stop relying on them or needing them to intervene Mm -hmm. or be part of your life in a hands-on parenting way. Um, You know, after that, your relationship changes. They're still your parents. You still love them. Years later, you know, if they pass away as mine had, you, you deeply miss them. But That that day to day uncle and parenting role ends fairly early, you know, when you're 18, 19, 20, somewhere around there. That's how I grew up. And so that was my expectation. And when I made this commitment adoption is forever, adoption is, you know, lifetime, all these things, I absolutely meant them full, uh, you know, full stop. And I still Mm knew, but I did not know that it really meant, with many of our kids, it really meant active parenting even when they're in their forties or, you know, yeah, uh, and, and that it would be very different. That experience in the, in the years that they became, they became adults and that they became parents would be so different. And I know probably for many of the people listening, you know, they may not be there yet with, with adult kids or grandkids and they may, um, this may sound discouraging in some ways, but I hope to make it um, an encouragement, but also a, um, something to be prepared for, you know you need to shift your perception of sort of what parenting and what family life uh, can and will look like, not only when your child is up till they're eighteen or nineteen, but you know ten years after that, ten years after that and and just kind of begin shifting your perspective and having a different sort of broader uh, concept of what family life can look like about what. You know what the expectations might be, and no one ever prepared us for that. And I feel that that was the the thing I wish someone had given us that. You know,
0: that's a great point because I think that really ties into what a lot of our parents experience to some degree. On, on one hand, there are concerns that when the kids become 18, 19, 20, nineteen, twenty, they're just going to want to run away and leave the family. My, that hasn't been my experience. My experience has been that a lot of times it's similar to the behavior of a three year old in that they go out, they explore their universe, and obviously an 18-year-old's universe is different than a three-year-old's, but they go out, explore the world, and skin their knees a little bit, and come back home um, to get comfort, reassurance, remind them that they're safe, and then they go back out again.
1: Yep, that's a, and that, uh, that's a perfect way to explain
0: it. Is that, is that pretty consistent with what you've, under, what you've experienced? It?
1: it absolutely is. I mean, we did, we did have a couple, not too many out of our total number, but we had a couple... Of- that just basically said, yep, I'm out, you know, at 18 or 19 mm-hmm. or somewhere around there. Every one of them has come back in one way or another. And that was only a few, for one thing, that, that kind of did it that way. Um, and, and they each, those couple of kids that did that have definitely come back um, and, and wanted to be kind of reconnected in ways that they didn't think they wanted to when they were 18 or 19. And then, um, but the others, pretty much all of them, would fit the pattern that you just said. It's like, kind of go out, explore, try some things, succeed, not succeed, scrape their knees. And the coming back has looked different for some of them than others. You know, some of them literally have, if they, you know, have needed to talk to us about coming back and moving in and we've had to navigate those conversations and we've had different answers for different kids, which, um, it's challenging. You can't, you, know, you can't treat everyone exactly the same. You've got to really look at the individual and what's going to work best for that one. Um, so can, I, can, I, yeah, can I ask you a question about up. that, Sue? Yeah.
0: Can, uh, because you, br- you bring up a good point and this was not something I anticipated asking, you, but we do get that question from a lot of parents and you, if anybody would know the answer to this or know how you've managed it, but how do you explain to one child, maybe a child who's a birth child, um, why you need to treat a, another child maybe with a different set of expectations or even rules because of their particular circumstances. How have you navigated that? Because that can be tricky for some of our parents.
1: It's totally tricky and, and there's not a, a, a one-size-fits-all answer, but one of the things we did early on when we had a whole bunch of kids that were sort of in the um, 10 to 13, 14 age range. We had, a, we had a group that were kind of all in that age range at the same time and we were hearing this chorus of it's not fair you know every other minute mm-hmm. um and it had to do with that when we would make one decision for one oh yes you can go to the mall with your friends and another one oh no you cannot go unless there's adult, three adults with you. you know um right and l- luckily during the middle of that time one of our uh children broke her arm um luckily doesn't sound like a good way to put it but it turned into a real teaching opportunity she broke her arm she had to have a cast um and then we were at the dinner table a night or two later while she still had her cast on and another family member another child said um he couldn't he didn't think he could eat dinner his stomach was upset he didn't feel well and somehow this just popped into my head and I said oh I'm really sorry you don't feel well, we are going to the doctor right now and we're going to get a cast on your arm. And the whole family looked at me like, this time, mom's really lost it. <laughs> he chooses, <laughs> he has a stomach ache, but She wants to put a cast on his arm. And I just let it sit for a minute until they started asking questions. And I said, well, you know, I've really been listening to what you've all been saying about being fair. And I realized the last person who went to the doctor, who went, got a cast on her arm. So, from now on, anyone who doesn't feel well should always get a cast on their arm so we can be fair to everyone. And, you know, <laughs> they laugh. And t- but that led to a really good conversation about how treating everyone the same isn't what's fair <laughs> and that it wouldn't be fair right. to get a cast on your arm if you had a stomachache. And then we were able to extrapolate from that. And then over time, it's, that didn't mean that this issue never came up again but over time it was kind of a touchstone we could come back to and remember the castle in the arm conversation so i think that's a really important thing for parents is to kind of create these sometimes silly sometimes fun um moments that kind of can be touchstones you can come back to in future times when you have an issue that you know you're not going to solve this issue once and for all it's going to come back again and again but you have something you can sort of bring everybody back to that oh yeah we've been that we've talked about this.
0: That's a that, uh, thank you that I think that makes perfect sense. And I know that'll be that'll uh, spark some thought from some of our parents. That's a great way to manage that. And it, 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 that is typically a challenge. Speaking of challenges for you, what have, what have been some of the greatest challenges you've seen related to adoption through the years? Um, well, in, in
1: um, the broader sense, in the, the larger society the changes and challenges really have related to the view of why is adoption need why do some children need to be adopted and then what sh- what uh role uh should their family of origin continue to play if any in their life how should their family of origin oh, be yeah. viewed um you know have is there is this a rescue is this a, is this a partnering is this you know uh is this more like a Marriage, where two families come together, or is it more like a rescue, where you're, you know, removing someone totally from a um, terrible environment, and and just all the different views, both politically, uh, from different religious frameworks, and just different community media views. I I think that that's been the landscape out there, this wavy, changing sea, and families have to navigate their own family circumstances within those broader messages and sometimes what you know in your heart um, is right for this child or this situation seems to go against the grain of those big broader messages out there in the world and in the media and that that's a challenge.
0: Yeah well said well said. Sue have your have your views on adoption changed throughout the years and if so how have they?
1: Yeah absolutely and kind of uh, that's a great follow-up to what what we were just talking about because um I have to be honest and say that as that young, early, um, you know, newlywed, uh, uh-huh. thinking, th- thinking that, that I was rescuing somehow children from, from terrible situations, um, you know, really learning. I, I, and even in that early time, I met an adoptive parent who said, uh, and we were adopting a child at that point from another country, and he was a little bit of an older child, he wasn't a baby. But she said, uh, as we were, she met, came and saw me one day as we were preparing um, for his arrival imminently. And she said, uh, never forget that all, whatever joys you have as you raise this child, there's also someone else who it's their pain. There's a birth parent who it's their pain that led to your death. And this was years, decades before people, outside of you know outside of like (laughs) bulby you know this was before before people were really talking about trauma and attachment the way we are now but this this mom she was a foster mom and an adoptive mom she got it and she said that to me and that really kind of began the process of opening my eyes but my my views on adoption as sort of the solution um for For almost any child who's ever experienced trauma in in the home, uh, to now thinking adoption is a very very big, um, you know, uh, it's it's so big that it should really be weighed very carefully, and it should be uh, not the first uh, thing that systems look at for a child. Uh, Now, by the Mm -hmm. time you're an adoptive family by the time you're a family that has a child in your life, um, then hopefully if systems have done their job well, then yes, you should be thinking about adoption and that commitment of permanency that that child needs. But before, before families ever get in that situation, systems should be really, adoption should be much more rare if they're doing good work with families. So, so you know, my, my views on that have really changed over the years about, you know, just sort of scoop them off and get them all in those good a homes to let's be really careful, really thoughtful, let's work really hard with families of origin and care. But then when we do do adoption, let's make sure it's really gonna be permanent, that the family really is gonna make the commitment, and so it's gonna stick and support those families.
0: Well, you, you, you bring up a great segue, thank you, uh, to, to another uh, really important point. Oftentimes, Sue, our parents will share with us that they were really never educated about block trust, complex trauma, developmental trauma, and the impact that might have not only on their child, but also on their family as they try to raise this child. What are your thoughts on the prospect, process of educating prospective adoptive parents on these matters, especially when the majority of adoptions are successful? So, in other words, how do we, how do we teach parents about this without scaring them off and, and, and in the same time reassuring them that they can manage it? What are your thoughts?
1: Yeah, it's a really great question, and we were never – taught or prepared any of that information either didn't <laughs> be adopting. I mean the, the, the information in the form that could be shared with doctors' parents wouldn't exist um, and right away at, very very soon after we started adopting and being foster parents we actually founded a nonprofit um, to help provide support to families and um, and I, my degree is in education and so one of the first things I did was create a curriculum to teach people I still I during this uh, coronavirus time when we've been sequestered in our homes, one of the things I've been working on is sorting through old boxes of stuff to see what can I get rid of. And just this yeah. week I came across, just this week I came across the, uh, the original hand-typed, you know, on a typewriter um, oh, wow. version, version of that curriculum that I wrote all those years ago uh, because I was so passionate about families need information and, and you can't make educated or informed decisions about your life if you and the child that you're supposedly going to care for, if you if you don't have good education and good information, and two things just come to mind in relation to your question about doing it and not scaring people, and one is again kind of a silly um, touchstone that I, that I come back to sometimes with families is that uh, when people are getting ready to have a child, were to them their first child? Uh, oftentimes they go to a class that's you know um, for pre- pre- for pregnant. Uh, couples or individuals mm-hmm. and there's often a class that's preparing them for childbirth and might be Lamaze or other things um, and and they always teach you things like babies wake up a lot in the middle of the night babies get colic and here's what colic looks like like I have never heard a conversation among those educators of pre pre you know pregnant families we better not tell them that that they're not going to get any sleep for eight weeks or that they're never going to want to have the space um or we better not really tell them what colic is or you know like there's just this in the natural order of things there's this understanding that of course you prepare people for even the scariest or worst things that could happen and then you help them know what are your strengths what are your tools what are your coping mechanisms and so we have to do the same thing um in adoption, I literally once worked with a family that adopted an infant. Um, and, you know, we didn't do much infant adoption in, in, work in that class that I was telling you about. So we had all these, we had a lot of education, but none of it was really about, like, the actual day-to-day care of newborns, because that was one of the kids that we were seeing. And then we uh-huh. got a newborn, and after about a week, they called me, and they were just like, exhausted and they were the mom was like crying on the phone and didn't know what to do and I said well what's going on Well, this baby you know everything is good until this certain time during the night and he wakes up and there's nothing we can do to to get him back to sleep and so we're just not sleeping and we're so exhausted and so I ran through like what are you doing when the baby wakes up and they went through this whole as well changing the diaper and walking around the room and um putting on music and all these things and then I said well, are you doing those things before or after you feed the baby? And the mom said, feed him? In the middle of the night." Who would do that? <laughs> and, oh, no. And I realized we had never educated on this very basic thing. Um, and so, people, you know, she would have been way less stressed if she had known that basic thing, right? So i that's a silly example, <laughs> but it's, it's even relevant to the harder examples, like we, so now the more serious one, we had a child placed in our home, and he was only um, 11 or 12, and usually we, this is when we're doing a lot of foster care, and we almost exclusively took teenagers that were quite a bit older than him, but the state commissioner knew us pretty well and said, I really think this child needs to your family and the, the structure you provide, blah, 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 and we had a good relationship, but nevertheless, they still didn't give us very much uh, information. This is still back at a time when... when families weren't given nearly the information we're given now. And, and so uh, it turned out that this child had a history of setting fires and that Mm. he he had even set a fire in which some, you know, um, living animals had been killed, had died. And um, this was not related to us. And we lived in a rural community and he was 11 or 12. I mean, we let we had, we had, our birth kids were not afraid, even though our other foster kids were older. You know, we let them play outside in the yard. We let them kind of ramble around the neighborhood. It was a big rural neighborhood. All the kids did this, and then one day he burned down the neighbor's farm. And oh wow! We we're devastated now. We, even in that circumstance, we advocated for him to stay placed place with us. We wanted, you know, we weren't trying to get rid of him at that point, but the state basically just whisked him away and said, Oh, clearly he needs a higher level of care and things like this. Um, rather than really looking at his needs for attention and permanency. But right. we would have done a whole, we wouldn't have been scared away from taking him if they had told us the truth we would have said, okay, help us know what we need to do to keep them safe if we know this truth. And so I think that most people who want to adopt, you know, it, and those who are scared away by information, then probably that's better to find out at the front. But I think most people are not going to be scared away if they're really, if this is what they want to do, they're going to say, okay, give me all the If this is what is in store, or this might happen, or this is this child's history, or this is, you know generally what happens with kids in this kind of situation give me all the information i can have to be the best parent and to make the best decisions for this child and for the safety of the rest of my kids or my community or whoever else might be involved and so we would have been better parents to him and better citizens to our neighbors if we had known the yeah. truth and we could have worked very differently and we certainly wouldn't have let him just go roaming around playing in the neighborhood like others 12-year-olds do, we would have had different rules for how, you know, how we um, engage right. with them and so on. So, I really um, I really think that families need education and that even those that seem to be successful, when you said the majority are successful, I think even those that appear successful on the outside and, and, and therefore are in, in a lot of measures, they still also can benefit from more education and from knowing more about some of these things. They can become more successful or go from kind of good to great, <laughs> um, if you will.
0: That's, that's a really, really good point. And, and of course it's frustrating. I'm sure some of our parents listening going, but they don't give us the information we can't get the information or we don't know. And always frustrating, always frustrating. Always. And that, yeah. that's just something we're going to have to continue to work on getting open adoption records, fighting for that, fighting for, right. for, for birth family histories.
1: Yeah. And I, I tell families all the time that when you, there was a time, and when we when we had that experience, it was true. What I was about to say: there was a time when agencies deliberately did not give information to families, thinking we're going to scare them away, or we'll never find the family for this kid if we tell or whatever. I think that time has mostly passed. I'm not saying there's no agencies that do that, but I think there's been between the positive education and the negative of lawsuits. Um, I think there's been um, a shift. And so most of the time now, when families don't have, you know, later learned information that wasn't shared with them at the beginning, it's not because anyone deliberately withheld it. It's because it truly wasn't known. And for many of our kids, things things that caused their earliest trauma or their deepest wounds or their attachment challenges, most of the time just aren't known. The child doesn't know it, and the birth parent doesn't know it, and no workers that work with them know it. Not in a cognitive, verbal way that you can talk back and forth about and not in a way that can be right. written in the file. So when we, as things emerge and we learn new things, we have to not be angry and say, oh, no one told me this, but say, okay, as this new information is emerging, what new information do I need to learn to keep up and to get a step ahead?
0: Great points, Sue, great points. Now, now drilling down a little bit, you, you, as you've, through your history, you've had children who've had emotional and other challenges. Um, and our parents, one of their big, big, uh, I, I guess, challenges themselves is managing dysregulation with their children um, because it shows up, it de- isn't it, doesn't it seem like it shows up at the most inopportune times? Um, <laughs> yeah. There's, ne- there's never a convenient time for an emotional meltdown, especially when you're dealing with teenagers and larger kids. Um, what? Share with us, Sue, what's your experience with managing teens who have emotional outbursts um, Kind of, kind of what's been your journey with that?
1: Yeah, and it has been a journey, that's for sure. You know, our, our one of our first things we did after we got into foster care, um, we took a position as, um, my husband and I together took a position to direct a group home. It was where they hired married couples to be co-directors of a group home. And we were basically the only staff. <laughs> uh, it was a teaching family model is what it was called. And um, wow, it was... It was uh, it was a Boys Town model at the time. Now, Boys Town has these since then too, but the way Boys Town did it at the time, uh, and we weren't on campus at Boys Town, but they had these group homes all around the country. Um, they, it was called a teaching family model. Basically, the only staff was a husband and wife that lived in the home with a group of teens with very significant, um, you know, behavioral challenges, often arrest records, um, uh, you know, lots of dysregulation lots of trauma and they taught you they taught us they they use a very um behavior uh oriented point system kind of approach like i said they've changed now too but even then we weren't big and keen on that approach but you know we kind of had to do it to keep our job but we didn't do it really well to tell you (laughs) (laughs) So we we were more relational than point system oriented, even back then, but we got good, we actually got good marks, you know, for doing it well, but we were always more relational. Um, But one of the things that they taught us that was um, very meaningful and has been important as it relates to the question you're asking here is when, when one, um, one of the teams is getting sort of, uh, you know, they wouldn't have used the term just regulated at that time, but out of control or, you know, whatever kind escalating of Escalating. Yeah. Escalating, all of that. Um, the, one of the first and most important things is to ensure that they don't have an audience because they're not going to be able to calm down if they're playing to an audience. And so one of the first things we learned to do was how to um, really ensure that our interaction with that young person, we're not going to be witnessed by all the rest of the young people. So whether we, um, whether we kind of found a way to take a walk or get that one that was having the, the meltdown off into a different space, or if that person wasn't going anywhere and was having their meltdown right here, right now, then one of us could take the other, everyone else off into a different space um, yeah. and then come back to support. But so, so that, that, is a key ingredient that that makes a difference and that was something we learned at the very beginning of our journey um, was just to really give the the calming and the attention needed to the person having the meltdown but to remove the audience factor and I don't know that the reasons that it's effective are the same reasons they would have told us back in those days of behavioral approaches but um, really you know because they talk about saving face and things like this but however we want to look at it that ability for, for anything you try to do that's going to involve calming and co-regulating and, and, you know, connecting, uh, are going to be more effective when you don't have others around. So to the extent that it's possible, um, that's what we always tried to do, even in our home, uh, when we had kids of all ages, you know, and so sometimes it meant, you know, telling a teenager who was doing well at the moment, hey, can you take the younger kids out back? And, play ball with them or you know it didn't you know we had to sometimes improvise in how we made this work but that that was one of the very first things we learned that all over the years was effective Um, beyond that we weren't always great at some of the other steps we took you know we really did have to learn over time Um, sometimes you know we did things like yelling or trying to reason with someone that's already dysregulating you know things that now we know like don't don't work at all and and only you know can make things worse um so so we learned many of those things through our own journey of doing stuff and, and not having the benefit of sort of having learned what would be better but but now we know and now as i counsel some of my adult kids with their children who are teenagers or as i talk to parents around the country you know the more you can do to just keep yourself as calm as possible the more you can do to keep your breathing as regulated and I would say even louder than usual, you know, just really good breathing that the child can even hear because then good regulated breathing can be contagious. And that's one of the first mm-hmm. things that can help co-regulate the child. Um, so, you know, keeping yourself calm, trying to do some co-regulating, trying, you know, keeping everyone else kind of out of the area, not trying to uh, use your voice as little as possible, you know. Not really trying to talk through it or rationalize, um, and not trying to totally invade the boundaries of the, the, you know, not getting overly close. Not, not, but kind of being, not leaving the room, um, staying present, trying to do some of these co-regulation things, but just um, allow, you know, trying to keep everything as safe and calm as possible. Tuning in, saying, you know. Even if the, and not responding in kind to the kinds of aggressive comments that the young person might be making, but saying, just, you know, saying, we'll, we'll talk about that when we're calm. Can't do that right now. You know, and just kind of yeah. having little mantras like that that you repeat. Um, usually that approach can be effective uh, when you have those ingredients in there, but it, it, it does take some commitment and it takes some time.
0: I'm I'm gonna I'm setting you up on this, and I apologize in advance. And and
1: because Sue, you and I, when we were in,
0: uh, we were doing a training in Hawaii, and I shared that I see the metaphor I used to use was that parents are kind of like a platform that the kids are on the roller coaster, and we have to be the platform that they step off to for serenity. And you gave me a metaphor that was even better. And I and I and I'm putting you on the spot. I don't know if you remember that metaphor, and I couldn't remember it. I do. Oh, do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs>
1: Oh, I can't. I can't remember. It. A lot. Oh my goodness. Um,
0: well, if you if you think of it, if you think of it, let, let, chime in and tell me. But it, I remember thinking, yeah. wow, that's brilliant. I want to say it had something to do with the circus, but I could be totally off base. <laughs> 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 we're always we're always looking for it's, these wonderful metaphors that, that yeah, are impactful. And I, and, and, I
1: use metaphors all the time, um, but that particular one at the moment isn't coming to me. Maybe it will. So. <laughs> Put a pin there. Well, yeah,
0: yeah. And if, and if you remember, even after we're done this podcast, I'll, I'll send it out to all the parents. Because it really was impactful. I remember thinking, wow, I need to use that instead. I'm gonna, I, I remember even asking you, Sue, can I borrow? Actually, can I steal that? So, yeah. You can. <laughs> yeah. So, so after, after you, you know, you have these intense interactions with your kids, you know, um, how, do you, how do you decompress afterwards yourself? And, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a part B to that I'll ask you to address. You know, you and Hector, obviously, you, you've been through a ton together. And here you are, coworkers, colleagues, and best friends, and husband and wife. How do you, how do you manage to keep your marriage a priority when everybody's pulling yeah. at you in such emotional ways? And so if you, if you could speak to those two things, you know, the self-care piece and then the marriage piece, that would be great.
1: Yeah, and, and again, this is a great time to do this uh, conversation now that I can sort of over the span of time reply to it we, because I I want, we've been married 40 years. We, we dated seven years before that. Um, and wow. we really are best friends and we really are in love and we really, our marriage is really strong. But we had real struggles during a lot of those years and I want to say that to your listeners like, this work we're doing, whether it's with one challenging child or 22, you know, it's really hard on yourself and your self-care and it's really hard on your relationships. And again, that's part of why we ended up writing a book because we felt no one told us that that would be probably the other thing that, um, you know, your earlier question about what are you unprepared for? Like, people might have said a few things, but we never felt really prepared for, how hard it could get in those areas, and so we did some things that weren 't always the most healthy both of us and and we described that because we want people to know that even if you 've gone off the rails to use your roller coaster example um, even if you 've gone off the rails for a while or even if you 've you know made not the best choices in your own self care or in your relationships it, it's not um, it 's not something that can't be healed it 's not something that can't be mended i mean maybe you know there i'm not saying there are never times that it can but most of the time um it can be healed it can be mended it can be stronger and better um afterwards and over the long term that process actually helps our kids because they need a, they need role models of people who who do um they don't they, they're never going to achieve perfection and either are we but they, so they don't need role models of perfection. They need role models of people that struggle and that fail sometimes, but still figure it out and still don't walk away from each other. Don't beat each other up. Don't, you know, don't, um, don't completely quit. So I think that there's, there's benefits and lessons, even in the struggle. But um, now that we're on the other end of it, the things that I can say that have been successful and that have worked mm-hmm. um, really, a, a sort of an answer to both parts of your question at the same time it's funny Hector and I just did a whole workshop for a conference um, on that topic of how do you still have a healthy marriage 40 years later and all these kids and all these challenges uh, so yeah. whole, that's like a whole separate you know it's like a two hour workshop on that but um uh the the sort of shorter answer one of the tips that we put in that in that workshop that I think kind of relates both to the the self-care question and the marriage question is you really each adult, whether you're a marriage or, you know, a single parent who has uh, uh, some kind of supports in your life, but right now we'll focus on that marriage question. Each adult has to have at least one solid support person that's not there for both of you, but that's just there for you. And I don't mean someone that's Against the other person, I don't mean a triangulation. I mean, you have to kind of have someone that you can just pick up the phone and call and you can just say, um, you know, I'm going to pull my hair out or I can't handle it. You, you can make a complaint about yourself <laughs> if you need to. They're not going to take sides. They're not going to triangulate. So I'm not saying unhealthy relationships, but just someone who sort of gets it and lets you mm-hmm. do that. But also someone who that kind of remind someone you share your self-care plan. So you do need to have a self-care plan, whether that's, you know, you're the kind of person that needs to get a little outdoors or a little exercise or a little art or a little music or a scented something. Or, you know, once you kind of know what your best self care strategies are, share it with this person. And if you have more than one of them, that's great too. But have at least one. Share your self care plan with this person. Share the things that help you in your marriage the most with this person. Like, yeah, we really need a we need a date night or we need a time apart from each other or whatever it might be. Uh, Share a couple of those tidbits and your own self-care plan with someone so that when you, especially after these emotional outburst situations or really trying times, you have someone um, because many times in the marriage, you and your husband, spouse, partner are going to play off each other. And sometimes when I'm having a hard time, he's not. And sometimes when he's having a hard time, I'm not. And we can handle this. Ups and downs and stresses and strains of the kids, but when you're both having that hard time, that's when you need this outside support person. And this is separate from any therapy that you may or may not choose to have, this is separate from any actual group or organized support system you may or may not choose to have. Just having an anchor person, a friend, a sibling, your sister, your brother, whoever it might be, that you can just reach out to in those moments and say, Remind me what I need to do now because I'm so stress or I'm so drained or I'm so overwhelmed or I'm so exhausted that I can't even remember what my self-care plan is. <laughs> and as long that's, as you have at yeah. least one person like that, um, that's the most important thing I think that helps you get through it.
0: Well, and, and I think that's especially salient for, for many of our parents who are single. They've got to have that other person who can, who yeah. can really hear them out and, and be a soft spot for them to land.
1: Yep, exactly.
0: Um, so, in what areas, if, in, in looking at adoption itself, if you could, if, if through your experience, your vast experience, through, in what areas do you feel like adoptive parents need the most help?
1: I think um, that what we just talked about, sort of really you yeah. finding your people and having your your at least one, if not more, supports. I think that's really critical. I think even um, even recognizing how to take Basic care, of yourself like, are you eating right? Are you sleeping right? Are you, you know? So I think mm-hmm. that's one of the big things. I think that earlier point that I made about how do you help kids that you have adopted, and as they get older, how do you help them transition into adulthood successfully and safely? Uh, I think that's I think that's really um, something people need help with. I, I think we've touched on several of the things already in our conversation. Yeah. There's that piece about treating different kids differently and meeting the needs of one and especially when you have one child that seems to really just drain all the energy out of the family and then you have the child that's doing well but that nobody's noticing because they're doing well like how do we Mm -hmm. be good parents to both of those (laughs) okay you know both those kind of situations and um and parents really need help and support with that they need to know more information they need tools and they need people. I mean, sometimes it does involve. Well, the way you help support that is to have someone else you could call on to, to pick up some of that slack or to, to give some extra attention to the one that's doing really well. Um, one of the things we did in our family, we uh, we don't do like godparents or anything like that through our through our faith community, but we early on um, after I think we hit a tipping point of having five kids. <laughs> Uh, one of my mm-hmm. sisters said to me, um, she said, I don't know how to be an, an aunt to five kids. It's too much for me. I can't do it. If you had one or two or maybe three, you know, and she was this young single aunt at the time she traveled. She's like, I could bring them back souvenirs for my trips. I could bring them over to my house for a sleepover. I could do this. I could do that, but I can't do that with more than three or even if it was only one, but the child with significant special needs, I can't do that with that child. Um, and when that made us realize, you know what? We need to identify. We need to get her off the hook of thinking she had to do it for all five kids. And we said, what would help? And we said, what if we just told you focus on one of one of the kids? And she said, well, I can't do that. That wouldn't be like favor to them. I said, well, what if we told you every one of our kids has somebody like you? So you you have one kid, and every and we, we go through a you know, and we picked someone for every child. So we called them special friends, but um, we made sure every one of our kids had a identified adult other than us that was kind of like their favorite aunt <laughs> that would be in a, that
0: is so you know, in a
1: more typical, you know, family would be the favorite aunt or the favorite uncle. And so every one of our people in our life who wanted to help and wanted to support and wanted to give our kids some time or attention, um, but couldn't figure out how to do it for all of them or couldn't figure out how to do it for us, a child with very significant special needs all they had to focus on was one and that way each child did get that sort of treats back brought back from trips or older nights or whatever it might be and the kids with special needs that didn't allow for that kind of interaction we identified other types of adults who could do the kinds of things that they would need and um and that worked really well, but I think that that's that's something that you know, unless my sister and I had had that talk all those years ago, I might not have been aware was in need. And I think a lot of parents don't realize, you need other adults, you need other adults, no matter how much you have a strong marriage, no matter how much you have all the education and other things we've talked about, even when you have a good school system and good resources in place, uh, you also need other adults in your life that you know you can trust and are, are safe around your kids and your kids are safe around them. And so I think that's probably the most
0: biggest thing that our parents need help with. That is a, that's really a brilliant idea. I love that, Sue. I really do. That's uh, good for you and Hector for, for realizing that and working with your sister and making that work for your kids. What that's a great idea. Great idea. So uh, I'm going to switch gears on you for a little bit. Um, I'm curious about your, you know, having seen what you've seen and you've seen it all, uh, right? Uh, A lot of people (laughs) say they've seen it all. You have seen it all. Okay. Um, you and I both know some people subscribe to the idea of a primal wound, meaning that some say adoption in and of itself is traumatic to a child. And yet others suggest that, you know, epigenetics plays a larger part and that adoption in and of itself isn't traumatic. It's just the way it's a, it, it evolves, the way it happens. What are your thoughts on these various pieces?
1: My thoughts are that our knowledge about all of this continues to evolve, <laughs> Um, and that we don't really know um, the full answer, and but more importantly, we don't need to know. <laughs> uh, I mean, it, it's good to continue to explore. So I don't mean we should shut off learning, research, or knowledge. But as a mm-hmm. parent, I don't need to know that the specific. Oh, is is it a primal wound? Is just the mere fact of being separated from their birth mother is that an insurmountable trauma, or is it something in their genetics, or is it epigenetic? What is this thing, epigenetics, or is it how they were treated for those six weeks in between when they were with their birth parents, Yeah. You know, or is it this or is it that? I think the more we can learn about underlying causes and root causes of things, the, the better it is for everyone overall and over the course of time. And I think our field and the various fields, psychology and, and education and, and so on are doing this. But I think, Sometimes, as a parent, you know this, this. used to be phrased much differently back in the day. We got tired. It was just simply, oh, is it nature or nurture? You know, is it right or right. environment? And um, and I think the answer really is we still don't know. We still don't really know. Mm-hmm. But what we do know is that for many of our children, um, there is significant early trauma wherever it started. There is significant early challenges with attachment and different attachment styles wherever they. Evolved from, and that there are things that we, as the primary adults and caregivers and people, you know, adult people in their lives, there are things we can do to mitigate that and to make a difference. And if over time we we uncover and learn more about some of those early things, then then we and the professionals that we work with, if we have therapists and others, I can. Respond to those specific things, and but even when we don't, we can we can behave in ways that that demonstrate that we understand there's a backstory, there's an underlying story, there's more to what's happening in this moment of behavior or whatever that's going on in the tub than meets the eye, and that if I can respond compassionately with the belief that there is that backstory even if I don't know the fullness of what it is um, then I'm going to have a better outcome with my child than if I sit here and try to think well now is this just him being a seven-year-old or is this you know adoption related mm-hmm. you know? in those moments those answers to those questions don't matter as much as can I respond compassionately as if there is that trauma backstory and work from there. I also think it's important to the bit larger community. I, I do use a, a metaphor a lot about trees. I know this isn't one we we're looking for before, but- um,
0: <laughs> Oh no, you, you keep talking.
1: <laughs> I do use a metaphor a lot about trees and how, uh, and, and especially related to adoption and permanency, like the roots the roots of the tree. And I, 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 often when I am doing PowerPoints, I have pictures of this, but how in each season, the roots have a specific job to do. And, spring, you know, how they have to get the, the nutrients up to the, out to the smallest of the branches so those little baby buds can bloom, can, can bud. But, um, you know, even if the tree had access to a lot of um, good water and good soil, but somehow wasn't able to absorb it, then the bugs would never bud. So sometimes we have, you know, failure to thrive type situations, um, not because, um not because they, they don't have access, like in, a, in an orphanage or in a, you know, some setting, but because they're not, they're, not, they're not rooted with roots who are able to then absorb that and give it to them. And, and throughout the seasons how the roots and the tree kind of, their role together uh, allows for the tree to thrive and flourish, but... Um, then I talk about a tree during a storm and you know, I sometimes show little video clips of trees during storms and in big storms, hurricanes, tornadoes, you know, you will see trees that get completely uprooted and then you'll see other trees that don't. And that's still standing. We, we sort of talk about what makes the difference. And the first thing people usually say about that is the difference is the roots. The stronger, the deeper the roots, the better likelihood that the, the tree is gonna stand even through the storm. And I think that is absolutely right. And so the stronger and deeper the roots we can provide for our kids through permanence, through attachment, through really absorbing what they need and filtering out the traumas and other things, then they will be more resilient to withstand the various storms of life. But the second factor is also true that it takes people usually longer to pick up on. And that is even a tree with really good roots. If it's in an area that just keeps getting hit by storm after storm and the ground around the tree is saturated, then that tree is probably going to fall over in the next storm, even if it had big roots. And so we have to pay attention not just to the individual roots we as like an adaptist family can provide, but what's the soil around us? Is the soil around us getting saturated by the storms of life? Are we just constantly exposed in our families and in our communities to constant whether it's because of poverty, whether it's because of racism, whether it's because of lack of special education resources for our kids, whether it's because of coronavirus, you know, whatever it might be, are we just so exposed um, in our community that even when we're providing good groups individually, eventually we hit the tipping point. And so I think we have to we have to understand that it's not just you know this question of this sort of primal wound or this epigenetics, but it's, it's an even a bigger question of what's the soil what's the community what's the whole what's the whole picture that the child is planted in and that the family is planted in and, and how do we strengthen both the individual and the broader community around the individual
0: you know i could just talk to you forever sue i really could you're just so well spoken and <laughs> I, I like I'm just so appreciative of the way you teach. <laughs> yeah, I love so appreciative of the way you teach. So, speaking, you touched on coronavirus. Any feedback, any coaching for parents on talking to kids at home, um, to, to to other kids about, uh, you know, the coronavirus, COVID nineteen, and what's going on in in our country today?
1: Yeah, I've been asked that a lot in the last few days um, from my own I bet. numbers <laughs> and from, um, and you know, I I think there's a lot of there's a ton of good resources out there so i i think you know child child Trends is an organization that just put out a really nice packet of resources so if people are looking for something deeper and more than what i'm saying in this answer that's one good place to look um the organization is called child trends and it just today put out this packet that's it's really great and um oh, and the, national, the national child traumatic stress network has also put some stuff out but um I think the most important thing is our own ability to a be calm and c and secondly be consistent and um, and thirdly to continue to connect. So you know three C's. <laughs> I like a little but you know if we're calm in our own um, responses to the, what's happening, the changes in our lives, and our schedule, and our finances, and our health, uh, if we're calm in how we respond if we are um, keep everything as consistent as possible in the midst of change so if we try to keep things like routines, schedules meal times uh, everything else is changing so whatever we can keep consistent to keep as consistent as we can and then the connectedness of relationships if we're together in the same house that's one thing if we're separated and now we can't go out and visit each other because of new restrictions you know finding ways through phone to through text to through face Um, other ways to just maintain important emotional connections. Uh, So I think that those are three things that are important. The other thing I think is so important is uh, just, you know, anticipating to some degree what your kids might be wondering and then to the other degree, asking them what they're wondering. So um, thinking in your own mind, oh, they might be concerned about this or that, so I'm going to address it. But on the other hand, asking, you know, what, what are, what are you thinking? What are you concerned about? One thing that struck me early on that when it came up was one of my grandkids said to, to her parents, you know, a lot of the news and everybody was saying, you know, Oh, it's only old people. It's only old people. Like, and that's, and how kids were hearing it was, Oh, this only affects old people. As if that was supposed to make them feel better. And it was making them feel worse, especially this one grandchild because I realized about after I heard about the conversation she had with her mom, developmentally if you're seven or even if you're 17 do you remember being 17 like I was 17 my parents had me when they were like 21 so they were still in their 30s when I was 17 right they were still in their 30s right like it's so funny but I, I, they were, I,
0: I think about I they were that ages. yeah
1: you know I thought my parents were so old when I was a senior in high school and they were like <laughs> 38, 39 you know and they just, didn't get any they were old people so the thing is that just that one little tidbit on the news, like, oh, this mostly affects old people or the way children here, to them that means this is gonna affect my parents. Like even if their parents are still in their thirties, you know, they view them as old. So really right. conversations like, um, what are we doing to stay safe? And is this gonna affect me, you, how's it gonna affect our family, what are we doing, um to to help us stay safe? What are we doing to help other people stay safe? You know, just really sort of tuning in, being tuned in, uh, listening, being present, and um, and then recognizing that, yes, they're gonna have reactions and behaviors that are all over the place. So again, kind of come back to that. How can I respond in ways that don't escalate? How can I be, continue to be calm? How can I continue to co-regulate them instead of escalating them um, even you know with an understanding that this is a this is a whole new frontier for everybody so you know that whole being calm being consistent being connected and then being attuned to what's on your mind and really addressing it and having conversations developmentally giving them as much information in a developmental way that they can understand it um yeah and then that will
0: and get crazy. It, it really sounds like a lot of that, you know, kind of is the secret sauce to parenting traumatized yes. children, doesn't it? I mean, I, I, it really is. Um, and sometimes it's so challenging and hard to do.
1: Yeah, it is. It's
0: so hard to yeah, do. Sounds
1: a little bit easy. It's not easy, but it's 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 clear. It's it's not hard to figure out. It's what to do. It's sometimes hard to do it.
0: <laughs> right. Right. Well, um, we we have a few minutes left, Sue, and, and I would love to hear your thoughts on the book that you and Hector wrote. If you could you share with some of our parents why you wrote the book, what motivated you to author it, uh, what did you learn from writing it, and how can our parents get it? I, you know they would love it. So uh, can you can you talk a little bit about uh, your book? Sure.
1: So um, first, we wrote a book together, my husband and I, and it's uh, it's in the category of a memoir. It's called um, Are We There Yet? The subtitle is The Ultimate, <laughs> <love that> <laughs> Me too. The ultimate Road Trip Adapting and Raising 22 Kids is the subtitle. And um, and we did write it together. We really did write it together. My husband, to this day, he's not a writer, but he really did as, as much of the writing um, as I did. We, we really worked on it together. And Throughout it, we even included a few chapters that were just specifically called from a father's perspective to just really um, show what he was kind of feeling and thinking because we thought that a lot of material out there wasn't really directed at fathers. Um, So it's a memoir, it reads like a memoir, it reads. It's it's a bit, it looks, when you look at it, it looks big, it's a lot of pages, but it reads, it's a quick, fast kind of read. Um, But we were hoping that through it, we would. Mostly, uh, give you know that it, it would be a way to educate people about what raising kids with you know early trauma histories and behavior challenges and and all of that, what that really looks like on a day to day basis. We were we were not um, we did not hide cover up <laughs> the messy parts. We we showed them. Uh, so we wanted people to have encouragement that you can get through the the hard valleys as well as reach the the joyful points up until that point really all we had ever seen were things that either um kind of glorified the adopted family like all you do you adopt a child you just love them and it's happy ever after or mm. the ones that were kind of the total opposite like watch out you adopt a kid they're going to burn down your house kill your cat and ruin your life um <laughs> and all You know, we had never seen like anything really in between. (laughs) And we really wanted people to say, yeah, you go through some really tough times, some really difficult valleys. I think the metaphor that I might have given you before (laughs) was the one that I use a lot about the um, following the yellow brick (laughs) road and being, you know, kind of the the concept of what the most important thing when, when those characters in The Wizard of Oz, when they went through the haunted forest. Um the most important thing that happened was that they didn't give up and that they didn't let go of each other. And wow. That they I, think, think, that it, I think that was it, Sue. I think that was it. Yeah, that's one of my favorites, so I should have thought of it when you asked the first time. But, you know, that, that to get – and I, I sometimes I jokingly say, like, these were, you know, these were people with – these were characters with big wounds. One didn't have a heart. One didn't have a brain. I mean, these are big gaping wounds. And yeah, they went on this journey because they had hope that there would be a better outcome at the end, but also because they had relationship with one another as they went through it. And even when they went through the worst moments of it, that haunted forest with the trees throwing apples at them and everything, um, they did not give up, but they also didn't abandon each other. And I think that's what we wrote the book for was to help people understand like even when you go through these hard places uh, don't give up and don't abandon each other and you will come out the other side and unlike the movie you know you're going to have more than one haunted forest moment in your life you're going to have several of them but each time you can get through it uh if you keep your mind if you keep knowing that we're going to do this together and there is going to be a continuing path of the elder crowd that we can still follow even after we get through this um, so I think that's why we wrote it is just to kind of really be that voice of, yep, it's hard, but yep, it's also wonderful. And I'll uh, kind of have both, both parts of the picture there, the whole, and, and so hopefully to give encouragement to people that are, especially people that are having those hard times or the professionals that work with them to help professionals really get it inside behind the curtain work of, oh, this is really what it's like for these families 24 seven, not just the hour that I see them in my office.
0: Right. So how, how would our, how would our parents be able to get your book, Sue?
1: Um, well, of course they can get it from Amazon because you can get pretty much everything in life from Amazon, <laughs> but, <laughs> but they also can get it directly from us. Um, we have a, I have a website, just my name, Um that, that we, and people can email me and we have a supply uh, that we, yeah, through the publisher that we're able to, um, Fulfill orders. If any group wants to hold, bunch of, we've had some groups use them for um, book group and everybody reads. So if any group wants to buy, you know, several, we, we give them a bulk price, things like that. We found out while I was cleaning my, my, uh, <laughs> while I was cleaning this, week <laughs> going through boxes, uh, between those we have left and those the publishers have left, we found out that at the thousands, you know, thousands that were printed, we're down to under 500 copies now and we don't know we don't know if it will get reprinted or not so um so that's exciting but it's also wow that's a big uh, we'll have to decide i guess if it's going to get reprinted and talk to publisher but right now that's where it stands um but yeah so they can either contact us directly or or go to amazon
0: and, and you know what we'll do, Sue, is uh, we'll put your information on the, on the email we send out to all the parents where they link to the podcast. We'll put your information as well, <clears throat> excuse me, so they can reach out to you. And is it possible for them to get a signed copy?
1: Oh, yeah. If they contact us directly, Amazon doesn't do that, but we, we can do that. Yeah. <laughs> if they contact us directly, we're happy to sign it.
0: Wonderful. Well, we'll make sure they have your 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 information for your website and 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 reaching out to you. I I think it's wonderful. I Sue, so I'm so grateful for your time today. I'm just so grateful, of course, for your friendship, your leadership, and the wisdom that you share. We're all beneficiaries of it, and and thank you for all you and Hector do. Uh, we're just so grateful.
1: Oh well, thank you. And I I equally just love what you do and learning from you. I feel like I learn every time I talk to you, and um, so it's a great it's a great. Uh, friendship, and I appreciate it myself. Thank you, Sue.
0: All right, everybody, Sue and I are going to wrap up here, and uh, thank you. Uh, Let me know, again, if you have any particular questions, uh, you know, any topics you'd like for us to explore more deeply on the podcast. Thanks, as always, for your trust and for your kindness and support of what we do at Three Points. Thank you.